Welcome to Interchange. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. Interchange was founded inside of Bond, the embedded finance company. This podcast is a place for conversation, questioning, and open learning about the future of embedded finance. Our guest today is Christina Villavives, CEO at Cladara, the all-in-one SaaS purchasing and management software solution. Cladara helps companies manage, control, and automate their SaaS so that they can scale operational processes, comply with regulations, and most importantly, save money. We cover Christina's entrepreneurial roots, what formed her obsession with financial services, and how her time as an operator led her to solving her own problem by building Cladara. The interview starts with me asking Christina about her early life and how that formed her entrepreneurial future. I hope you enjoy our interchange. My dad was running um, a company of 300 people. And in the evenings, we used to always have dinner together. And he used to actually uh, tell us stories about, you know, things that were going on in the business. And now we need to expand towards North America or Mexico or China. And I always thought that it was like a fascinating thing. And, and that, so the, let's say the business side of things was fascinating, but also it, because they had like a production plan, right? So, so there was also the element of going to see the, the production lines. And, uh, and as very little, I used to ask him on the weekends, Dad, can you take me, please? I want to see those machines that you put things in and things come out. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, and, you know, he used to do it. I think that probably today would not be allowed for health and safety, but it was uh, really very nice. And, and, you know, those things already start making you dream, or at least to me, right, from an early age, as to, you know, things that are possible that you don't even imagine. Did you think you would ever be a CEO of a fast-growing technology company? Did you ever see that in your future? Back then, when I was young, definitely not technology company. I was not sure. thinking of that. But I do remember when I was maybe around eight, it was about 11. I was uh, walking with my dad to, and that I remember really perfectly. We were walking to this car exhibition and, and I told him that one day I want to run a business like you do because it sounds so much fun. <laughs> of course, back then I didn't realize all the complexity that's behind, you know, the nice business trips and the, the good achievements. Uh, but yeah, but uh, it is something that's always been in, in the back of my mind. And definitely, you know, I studied business I then, you know, side finance, I did courses in uh, human resources, in uh, positive psychology. And in the end, it's all because I really think that, you know, that of running a business one day was always uh, one thing that I wanted to do. Have my own, really. Not, not running it, actually, but having my own. Yeah. That's the ownership, the ownership piece is big. Yeah. I can definitely understand that. This is not a question I was planning to ask you, but now that you say this, I'm incredibly curious and I hope I'm not hitting a awkward or sad note, but is your dad still alive and has he had a chance to see you kind of thrive in this position? Cause if I was, I, I'm just imagine him being incredibly proud of you with what you've accomplished so far. Yeah, no, he's still alive. Good. And, Good. Uh, and he <laughs> was a close one there for a second. No, and, and yeah, he's definitely very proud. I think that also he's sometimes, especially at the beginning when, you know, we were 
small and I was telling him all the great things that we were going to achieve. Because like, Christina, you know, you need to be down to reality. <laughs> <laughs> Please, you know, are you sure? And um, because obviously I had a very safe job before I started with Kodara. And, uh, and I always told him that, no worries, you know, when I say I'll do something, I do, I do it and I do it well. So you'll see. And now that, you know, he sees the team grow and customers that like our product and, you know, Cladara everywhere on the way, he, yeah, he's definitely very proud. He's very happy. Oh, that's an amazing full circle. <laughs> that's an amazing full circle. I, I love it though. And it's not too surprising. I imagine the, the pain that he went through as an entrepreneur in his time, probably he wanted to save you as his daughter that. Yeah. No, when I told him I was leaving the, my, you know, my safe banking job, he was like, what are you telling me? I can't believe it. Anyway, I can change your mind. So, nope. You studied finance in university and then. Yeah. So I studied finance and then I, that was in London already. Uh, and, and there I had the opportunity to, to join the European Bank for Construction and Development, the EBRD. And what I like about it is that I wanted to work for a big company because I wanted to see how big companies work. Because if one day I want to have a big company, then obviously you want to see it. So I thought it was a great opportunity of learning. So I get bored quickly of things. So uh, I don't know if it's because I learned things quickly. So then I started to go from one team to another, learning different parts of the organization. And then I ended up in this team that was set up to modernize the bank. And that's because... Originally, the EBRD was set up to be like a temporary institution, so that would fulfill its mission and then it would disappear. So you can imagine that for a long time, not a lot of investment had gone onto uh, technology or, you know, how are the teams evolving and is this sustainable on the long term? So, so then once that mandate changed and it became like a permanent place, a lot of work had to be done so that we could continue to be relevant going forward at all levels. Well, tell me about the the digital transformation, because I think that's a pretty good transition into into what we're talking about in the modern day. But I imagine everything was big stacks of paper traveling from room to room and things like that. So what was it like trying to modernize that? It sounds honestly like a nightmare. It was pretty hard. Yes. So uh, as you say, there were lots of, let's say, um, software that had been tailor built. But yeah, a lot of it was quite old and it was just like, okay, enter some data here and then that data stays here and it's just okay to keep the data. And and then uh, it was not really talking to anything and there was quite a lot of yeah fragmentation essentially. So it was even just figuring out all the different tailor-made solutions that we had were quite hard, was quite hard. And then trying to bring all the data together and all the data to reconcile. That was a you know massive project. And, and then, yeah, so essentially it's, you know, I don't want to maybe go too much into detail on that piece, but it was a, a big project that lasted years. So, and, you know, some parts of it is still ongoing now, I think. I haven't been there for, for a few years, but I think not everything was done when I, when I left. I don't think that problem has been solved anywhere, really, outside no. of like the really big <laughs> banks. And also the data silos are still a huge problem. So mm. it feels like pretty modern, pretty modern problem. And then from there, you went on to the, the world of DuPay, right? That was kind of the, the next step. I had the opportunity to join DuPay and manage the 
operations of the business being the middle and back office. And, and that was a, a super enriching experience, right? So Dupe is a fintech startup. Uh, we were building a new bank for emerging markets, uh, essentially to bank the unbanked. And, and for me, again, this was like, okay, financial services with a very good mission. And I'm a very mission-driven person, so <laughs> that's important for me. And, and then, yeah, what I ended up was uh, because our customers were going to be oh, people that didn't have ac- had never had access to financial services. I realized that, you know, to know my customers or two-faced customers, we, I had to move to Egypt to be able to really get to know them. That sounds like a quite a customer discovery experience. What was that like? And also, was there some culture shock and a language barrier? Yeah, the language barrier was definitely there. So we had customers that, of course, didn't speak English and some that did. And we had an amazing team that were very happy translating uh, for me as well when I couldn't communicate directly. For me, it was down to essential things, right? People that traditionally have not been served by banks, they have very low incomes and maybe they have no education. So sometimes they don't even know how to read or write. So when they receive a letter from the bank to say, hey, you need to call this number to activate your card, they actually don't know what the letter says, right? We had to look at how we could redesign certain processes and try to make it as intuitive as possible so that we would um, remove as as much friction as we could. What was the Egyptian financial services ecosystem like? I mean, I imagine there was a reason the Dupe was going there, and it's probably because there was a, as you said, kind of an underserved market. People would receive their salaries into the Dupe cards, and the first thing they would do is go to the ATM and take all the money because they were worried that otherwise they would not be able to access it. And it was only little by little that they would say, actually, you know what, it's convenient to have it here because then rather than having to walk two hours and queue for three to uh, to pay my taxes, I can pay online. <laughs> so they started seeing the benefits of actually using the system rather than just uh, not trusting it and, and extracting themselves uh, from it. Yeah, the trust that we take for granted in our financial ecosystem is pretty unbelievable. Okay, so you spent time in Egypt for Dupe. Was most or all of your time there? Did you move back to the UK? The last six months of my time at Dupe, I was mostly in London. And and yeah, so of course, uh, I was uh, running the team remotely and the company was growing and we had more people, more customers. Yep more uh, more software <laughs> and that is where you know my first experience with SaaS actually became negative because um, we were using a lot of it in the company and while we were smaller it was manageable but as soon as a lot of people started coming in and teams started to separate and then have new people coming in to manage them you know for example i ended up uh, with systems where i was an administrator but i never had to use them for anything but Mm -hmm. i had to be the one giving people access i had to be the one resetting people's passwords and if somebody left i had to remove access and then the the other thing that i observed there was that every time someone came they brought the piece of software that they had, that they really had enjoyed in the previous company. Right. That actually affected the company negatively. And, 
and it's a pity because it was a, a great enabler. And, and, you know, that's what started all those frictions that I was experiencing, both myself and the team. We started to, to think, oh, is what planted the seeds for, you know, what then became uh, Cordata, which is my next move. <laughs> yeah. I mean, anytime you're solving a problem that significant inside of a spreadsheet, it's kind of just begging you to start a company, right? So how did you go from pulling your hair out, deciding that, you know, this Atlassian tool is better than that Atlassian tool or whatever, uh, to actually leaving and taking the jump, jumping off the building and starting a company. We were at level 39 in Canary Wharf and there were other uh, founders and companies there. Yeah. I asked them, guys, how do you manage this? Because it's driving me crazy and I can't believe that, you know, there is no better way. And we were all just essentially running on a spreadsheet and I thought that that was impossible. And you know, I am someone that I like to have things organized and, and in good order. And that was one that was escaping my, <laughs> my abilities. And, and at some point, and I don't know exactly, I cannot point to one specific moment, but at some point I said, well, this has to exist. I mean, it's, it's crazy that the, the market, the, the SaaS market is growing so much and companies are embracing it and, and we are not able to manage it, which in result will mean that people will turn their back to it as I was doing. So, so then I just, yeah, decided that that had to happen. It had to exist. So I uh, decided to leave uh, that job. And my last day was on the 30th of June. And on the 1st of July, I started drafting things on whiteboards. (laughs) Do you think if you would not have been at level 39, that it would have been as obvious? I think that definitely if I would have not been part of the, let's say, wider startup community, I would have maybe not realized that that was just, uh, that that was a bigger trend. It was not just me, right? And that's why, okay, I was looking for a solution and I saw that then it was everybody on the same boat. So, okay, let's do something about it. I think if I would have maybe been in a more traditional environment, then not many companies back then were using a lot of SaaS yet. So maybe then it's like, okay, well, we are a weird company that uses this type of product, so we have a problem. So that's it, right? So I think that it was uh, being in the right uh, setting, the right context at the right time. Yeah, and just density, right? I mean, there's the, the studies mm-hmm. that show that the more density of humans there are, the more innovation that happens. And this sounds like a, a very good example of that. So tell me about the formation of Cladara. And actually, before we get to the formation of Cladara, how about we do something that I should have done earlier in the conversation and explain okay. what it is? What is Cladara? Let's let's set the stage just there. It's a platform that helps you or helps companies manage all the different software subscriptions that they have. And essentially, the way we we describe it is there is a, a SaaS journey within a company that it's like in four steps: is discover, buy, manage, and cancel. And these are the the different areas that we as a company are looking to bring order and, and help companies scale then with their SaaS. Those four parts don't sound easy to automate though. So which part did you build first? Which came second? Like how, how did you kind of like mentally think about unpacking the, the box one by one kind of a thing? Yeah, because of uh, my background in, in payments, right? I went for maybe the 
difficult one, <laughs> which of was course. the payment piece. Of course, yeah. So... You're, you're a glutton for punishment. You start with the <laughs> hardest one first. Yeah. And it was also a different one, right? Because everybody was approaching the SaaS management problem from an IT perspective mm. and just, you know, okay, can we identify which SaaS people are using? While I thought that actually the problem starts the minute that people want to pay for a SaaS product, right? They take their card, they pay for it, and then they expense it a month later or maybe two months later. And uh, and then you realize all of a sudden that you've been using something that maybe you didn't want to use. And therefore, I thought that, well, that was the entry point uh, of SaaS into companies. And, and I happen to have some experience in that. At the time, also banking as a service platforms were emerging. And I'm a big believer of, you know, financial services being just um, embedded into something else, because in the end, financial services is just uh, it's an enabler for other things, right? And we should not necessarily have to even see it. It should just happen. And, and then I thought, well, we could just bring payments into Pledara as a feature rather than, you know, being the main core product. And, and then, well, let's start with that one because it's the one I know, but also it can bring in itself value to the customer, right? Because they can create that virtual card for that software subscription, and then automatically that data is surfaced into the dashboard in, within Cladata. Who was your first customer? Like, at, at what point in that journey did someone start paying you money for this thing? First customer as paying customer or first customer to start using the platform? Ah, that's how I, that's how I know you're customer obsessed. That is the answer of a customer (laughs) obsessed CEO. Okay. So let's go with, let's go with the first customer to use it because that I imagine formed a lot of what the product actually became. And then I am very curious who paid for it first. So we'll go there second. Okay. So the first customer was, uh, was one of our suppliers that, uh, and they started using it on the day we launched the product. And that was three months from incorporation, obviously, the, of the company. And, and yeah, essentially, they saw what we were building and they thought, wow, that is something that we definitely need to use. And, and could we be your first you know, user and give you feedback? And we said, absolutely. And they became our first uh, customer to use Cladata and we became the second. So we've been uh, using you, you weren't even the first. That's amazing. No, no, we were not even the first. They were the, the first to, but we did the first test transactions, but they were the first customer to, to do the, um, the onboarding and, and start using it. And we kind of just glazed over it, but you just said that you built a financial product in three months and had a user actually interacting with it within three months. I think we should pause there. And if there was a crowd, there would be a round of applause, but <laughs> we, well, there isn't because we're on Zoom. But that's just an incredibly impressive amount of time. How many engineers did you have working on this thing? And I guess the best question to ask is actually almost Reed Hoffman-ish in that, were you embarrassed by your first shipment? Like that, that product that you got out there three months later, were you like, I don't want the world to see this, but I need feedback or were you proud of it? Uh, we were two engineers and myself, so small team. And then for, for the second, uh, yes, I was embarrassed actually. Good. So when I, when I had to show it to the, you know, to the first person as a, an angel investor, and I said, look, can I, it's working, but you know, it's not very pretty. So <laughs> don't take it into account. It just does what it says it does. So, 
And he, he looked at me. I guess I set the expectations very low. So he told me, Christina, it's not so bad. Come on, it's, it's all right. But my God, I see some screenshots from back then. And <laughs> now I wonder how could I put that in front of a, you know, a customer? Yeah. Well, to your earlier point, it's also building a business, at least as you know, I'm very close to one of your co-founders or your, as far as I know, only other co-founder, Brad Van yep. Leeuwen, mm-hmm. the man, the legend. Um, and we talk pretty often about the experience of raising venture capital overseas. And that feels like a piece of this whole story that is important to tell because in the United States, the ability to kind of, if you've done some really interesting things in your life, if you've accomplished a lot and you had accomplished a lot before starting this business, your ability to go raise an idea round, right? A a seed round of whatever, 5 million or less on some idea based on you as a human that went to Stanford or something is, is there and pretty somehow becoming seemingly easy. Whereas in the UK and in the EU, there's kind of this be so good they can't ignore you kind of thing. It seems like you have to have traction and have to have a real business before anybody's even going to consider giving you VC dollars. So to your point earlier on that three months, you had to get something out there so that you could even start having conversations with VCs, right? And a lot of what you want to build, I'm sure comes down to having the funding to hire the engineers to build the fun stuff. So yes, as you say, here you have to have quite a lot, I think, to, to raise, or at least that, that was my experience. And, but having said that, for the first uh, angel funds uh, here, so angel money, uh, that was quite quick, actually. It allowed us to, to build a product, put it to market, and have the first uh, five customers. And then from there, we started talking to the... Um, to the pre-seed um, funds here in, in the UK. And there, I have to say, I was a bit disappointed, right? Because we already had a product to market and we already had some customers and it was a big problem. But I almost think that we were a little bit early. So that was quite frustrating, I have to say. Uh, because, But it, it also reflected on, well, maybe I was not explaining well enough the, the company. So changing the way I explained it and talking to lots of uh, different people. And, and then, yeah, then, uh, well, Anthemus uh, decided to lead our pre-seed round. And that then was um, enough to take us to paying customers, right? Because there was still a lot of product to build for more of the value of the platform to be able to materialize. But then we say, okay, now we think there is enough value. Let's build the integration with Chargebee and let's uh, let's see if somebody clicks the button to buy. And surprise, surprise, they did. So that was very, very nice. Uh, that was in, yeah, in February 2019. Um, and, and from there, yeah, we started... Um, building the go-to-market function and then raising the round with Nauta. That one was uh, was in the middle of the pandemic, so it was difficult for other reasons, obviously, because you had to do everything on Zoom and people were still getting used to to that. And during that second round, you were, what, locked in a locked in a house somewhere in the outskirts of Spain and like basically in a village somewhere and you couldn't move really anywhere other than like outside on your front porch or something, right? I mean, you were truly locked down, weren't you? Yes, exactly. We were locked down 100%. 
couldn't get out of the house other than to buy groceries and go to the beans. <laughs> and that was it. So, so yeah, everything had to be on Zoom. And um, it was definitely an interesting experience. And we learned how, you know, Zoom is, is very good, right, for, for the interactions when you need something. But to build relationships, actually, it's hard. Yeah, it is. It's an incredibly different feeling, I think. Just even the, you know, the dopamine that you get from interacting with someone in person. There's a question that I don't even really know how to ask you, but I feel compelled to ask you, which is just what it's like to raise money and be a female founder in fintech. But the question, I guess, more so is less what it's like and more so are you sick of this question? Like, are you sick of people talking mm-hmm. about you being a female founder in fintech? And would you, do you wish people would just refer to you as a founder in fintech? Like, how, how do you think about that? Are, are you sick of the buzzwords? What's, what's your feelings? I guess, yeah. So female fintech, female founder in fintech, yeah, it's something I, I do hear quite a lot. Now... I actually don't think it's relevant uh, for me. I think, you know, I'm a founder, whether in fintech, female, well, it doesn't matter, right? Founders, we are we are all doing the same job, which is taking our companies to become great companies, big companies that, you know, customers find value in the products and services that we want to offer. And, and that's what we need to be measured against like i would not want to be measured only against let's say other female founders in fintech that's quite limiting and i think that you know we are then we are all doing trying to do the same thing and how would it be if i was not a female founder and i was a male founder well i have no idea (laughs) and i don't want to Nope. (laughs) Very happy in my shoes. So if nothing else, I hope this is like a public service announcement for like, let's just talk about fintech and maybe leave the gender (laughs) stuff out of it. Um, Okay. So now that we, now that we, we got through that, tell me about the growth of Cladara since that first fundraise. When we started the the raise, the seed round with Now the Capital, the, I think we had around 60, 70 companies. And that was really uh, at the time where things were turning, right? Um, so Brad had been doing, a, again, as I mentioned, so we had by then the a paying product and Brad had been doing an amazing job on the, you know, raising awareness about Cladara, all, uh, you know, um, inbound and, and fostering referrals. And, and that was working. And we started seeing really the, the fruits of all that hard work as soon as Nauta invested. And then, uh, yeah, we went uh, very quickly to 100 customers, then uh, 200 customers, now 330 customers. Like it's really, really picking up uh, very nicely. It's, uh, it's amazing. I mean, I, sometimes I, I reflect back and I can't believe it. It's like, wow, like we, we had customers when we started and you have all these many now and many more that want on board so that's uh that's beautiful that is beautiful what are you doing as ceo to stay close to customers because i know that's something that's very very important to you and you're also mm-hmm. running a company well i'm very close to customer support because I think that's where you learn a lot. And, you know, I have a conversation every day with, uh, with Gerard. He's doing a 
an amazing job and at gathering all the feedback from from the customers and he always tells me and if there are if there is interesting feedback or things that we've not heard before or a type of profile of customer that's slightly different i always ask him if you know to set up a call with them so that i can speak with them and then i want to understand what is it that they want to achieve with the product things that are not there that they would like to see and and i love doing that i love talking to customers and hearing what what they like and what they don't like do you you think you'll be able to continue to do that throughout the life of the company like is that a priority and like a core value for you that you think you'll maintain i hope so i hope so because i think that you know our customers will also evolve because as the product grows we have customers that become you know bigger uh, and we also target bigger customers so it's not the same when i started and i was talking to customers with 10 20 people or now that we are talking to customers with 500 people and their needs are different and if i only know what customers of 20 people used to tell me that's a very limited uh, uh, view of things so i i do want to have that contact and and i love it i love talking to customers i i actually do <laughs> i mean it's a it's a great use of time and i also think it's a it's a very easy thing for ceos to separate themselves from right after you raise a certain amount of money i think and after you've kind of gotten to some point of traction and you all definitely have product market fit so after that point, I think it's really easy as a CEO to be like, I got to go hire people. I got to go do all this other stuff. But I, I think it's really commendable how close you stay. And I can, the listeners can't see it, but I can see the smile on your face about just <laughs> talking about customers and talking about having the ability to stay close to them and just how much this actually brings you joy and sparks joy. Kind of final questions. One is, do you think we'll see you stateside? Uh, and do you, when do you think that will be, hypothetically? Will you be coming to America? We are doing a, a lot of work, right, to come towards the, the U.S., both from a product perspective, but also from a personal perspective, right? We want to come see you guys in person um, when they let us travel. But, but yeah, so from a, from a product perspective, uh, yeah, the company is... Uh, well, we are working at the moment on doing the integration so that we can offer Credata also to U.S. Uh, companies. We have um, constantly companies from there that they want uh, access to Credata. And at the moment, we cannot do it, which is a pity because I like to say yes to customers. Yeah. Well, I can't wait. You and I have had I don't know how many conversations and we've never actually met in person. So I'm very eager for you and Brad to get to the United States and to meet the rest of the Cladara team, too. Which leads me to the final question, which is mm -hmm. how can our listener base help you? You know, at Cladara, we are, I believe, and I know we are doing something amazing, right? And from the beginning, we've always been prioritizing speed. So as I mentioned, we launched the first MVP in three months, and we are now already able to operate in the US, uh, in the UK and in Europe. And as a seed stage company, Right. We will be the first ones to be able to operate in uh, UK, Europe, and the US very soon. So that's something that no other company has done before. And this means that we are expanding the team, right? And, and as a result, if you know, you know anyone that would want to be part of Cladata and help us with those expansion plans and help us deliver a, an even better product to our customers, 
then we'll be very happy to have a conversation. And I would say the key roles that we are looking for actively at the moment is um, one is demand generation, the other one is uh, product managers, and then some amazing engineers. And if they want to find those roles and get in touch with you, they should go to the Cladara website, find you on LinkedIn. What's the best way to do that? Either would work. So on the website, they can, there is a careers page or directly to me. And if you are great and you think that you definitely want to work with us and there is no job opening for something that you would want to do, just reach out and let us know. And I'm sure we can arrange something. Beautiful. Well, Christina, I've learned a lot. I appreciate it. I always love talking to you. This has been a blast. And I really hope that we get to hang out in person soon and share a glass of, glass of wine or something like that. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Zach, for putting this together. I really enjoyed it as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Interchange with Christina Villavives. Interchange was founded inside a bond to benefit the developers, product owners, and executives at brands working inside the next generation of financial services. We hope that you're learning, enjoying, and maybe even laughing along. We love this world and we're passionate about every piece of it. Let us know what you'd like to learn more about, who you'd like to hear from, and what's getting you out of bed in the morning in this wild world of fintech in which we live. If you'd like to learn more about Bond, please reach out. You can get a hold of me at Zach at Bond.tech. Let's start a conversation. Check out the show notes and the Bond blog for a deeper dive if you're still listening and just can't get enough. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and a rating in your favorite podcast app. Until our next interchange.